This edition of Monocle on Sunday was broadcast on the 29th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Roulet. Coming up on today's programme, we have Prishka Amstutz is here from the Tagus Anzeiger and Florian Egli as well. Um, he has some newspapers, some uh, pages in front of him. In front of him, What have you spotted this morning, Florian? So it's a 70 years anniversary of Aromat, um, a famous seasoning from Switzerland. Um, we're also talking about how the right-wing party in Switzerland is trying to position itself for the election. And we're gonna, we might, if we have time, learn what the lipstick index is. Very good. Well, I think it'll be a lot of time spent on Aromat. Also, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, is with us in London and will also be getting the latest from the Balkans. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll be bringing you news of Serbo-Slovenian spying shenanigans, a conundrum for Kosovo and Serbia, and North Macedonia's niggly neighbour. More from Guy a bit later. Plus, we'll speak to Michael Binion, lead writer at The Times. It's the 29th of January, 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. And good morning from a, a rather sort of cloudy Zurich. Uh, there's a promise of uh, sunshine a little bit later. I was up in the mountains yesterday. It was absolutely uh, gorgeous. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit about uh, the Engadine and upcoming events as well. Happy to say, as we said at the top of the show, uh, Priska Amstutz is here, uh, one of the co-editors-in-chief uh, at uh, the Tagus Anzeiger here in Zurich. Of course, uh, listeners around the world, if you don't know the Tagus, it is one of the newspapers of record in German-speaking Switzerland. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Good morning, Tyler. How's the first month of the new year uh, been to an editor-in-chief at a Swiss newspaper? It was kind of slow, actually. It was nice coming back with a lot of creativity and new ideas for the new year. And news was quite slow, except um, for of, the, uh, our, of our Corona leaks, uh, a story <laughs> that our uh, health um, minister had a, a connection to one of the publishers in, in Switzerland. This has moved a lot of people and gave a lot to write about. Indeed, especially over the, well, not just the last week, but certainly it's uh, it's become a bit interesting, that story, uh, probably over the, even the last uh, 24 hours. We'll talk a little bit about it uh, as well. Uh, also, uh, Florian Egli is here uh, from the Think Tank for us. Haven't seen you for a while. You're all bundled up this morning. Good morning, yes. I made it to the studio. <laughs> which is which is good, which is a start uh, right there. Also, uh, in the world of think tanks and uh, foreign policy, uh, big and bright ideas. Uh, um, good looking 2023 so far, or...? Yeah. Also a slow start. Also a slow start. Um, also a hope for a 2023 that is a bit less crazy than 2022. A bit less frenzy would be good for this world, I think, in foreign policy, but more generally as well. Um, we had a bit of a... I mean, it wasn't it wasn't only or it wasn't actually like four hours branded, but we had a bit of a retreat um, last weekend in Ticino, in Chimachita, which is an old chocolate factory. So not Chinachita, but Chimachita. Chimachita okay. Yes, it's an old chocolate factory and a great place for creativity. So um, it's kind of an artist in residence place, and um, also a lot of think tankers there. So um, yeah, that was the start into the year. Very good. I also want to bring someone who I know has not had a slow start uh, to the year. Our our, our editor in chief, uh, Andrew Tucker, uh, is. Uh, with us in London uh, this morning. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler, and um, very good to be talking to you. 
Uh, tell me, don't you like the term that Florian said, think tankers? Do you know any think tankers? <laughs> I think I've had a few parked on our lawn from occasion to occasion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew, if, uh, if we uh, surveyed uh, the, well, the, the media landscape, and I, I will bring you in on this uh, interesting story regarding uh, one of the Bundesrat here, uh, the health minister, Alain Berset, and uh, yeah, a bit of a scandal with a newspaper down the street uh, as well here, here in Seyfeld. But we'll do that in a moment. But uh, what's catching your eye uh, in uh, the English language press this morning? Well, it, it's not a, a day where the newspapers agree on what the, the, the big story is. So everybody's, it's, it's just not a very big news day. So lots of people are, are contemplating anniversaries, for example. So next week is going to be 100 days of Rishi Sunak in power. And I think that most of the papers are saying that while he may be a competent manager, that they fear that he hasn't managed to get out of first gear yet. And as he's been dogged by these strikes and now also one or two scandals closer to home in his own uh, um, party. So we have Nadim Zahawi, who's the chairman of the Conservative Party, who threatened people with legal action last year when people suggested that maybe his tax affairs weren't in order. Now he's had to admit that he did pay a penalty, thought to be around a million pounds for not paying his tax correctly, and that the actual total sum that he's going to have to pay back in taxes is probably closer to five million. But still, Rishi Sunak has not been willing to get rid of him from his government. So there's a feeling that while he came in promising you know, clarity and, and n no corruption would, would hover around him, that he has allowed it to kind of fester as well. But Andrew, is it, is it no bad thing in a way that, uh, okay, fine, I mean, even we've heard our two guests in Zurich said it's a bit of a slow start to the year. Even if he said a slow sort of first hundred days, it's, it's better than uh, certainly uh, myriad other problems we've uh, seen from more recent prime ministerships. Yes, and, and there are some interesting things in the background. I think one of the most important is that there does seem to be some edging towards an agreement with uh, the, the Northern Ireland Protocols, which is these, this arrangement we have with the EU that has caused all sorts of uh, side issues. That currently, Stormont, the parliament in Northern Ireland, doesn't sit because the parties are so angered by what's, what's going on with this, uh, with this agreement. But meanwhile, you have Biden saying that, you know, that for anything to happen, in, in Northern Ireland and for the, the, the UK government to get the support of the Americans, they have to resolve it. Now, we understand that, that they're getting pretty close to an agreement with the EU. And then again, it will be interesting to see whether he can sell it into his party. But it, it's, it seems in the background, his patience is going to deliver some things that maybe not big headline grabbing uh, Boris Johnson style uh, uh, declarations, but will deliver proper change. Mm. And Priska, I want to bring you in on, on the story that you were just highlighting at, at the start of this, which is, you know, it is it is a media scandal. It's a political scandal um, in this country. And we've touched on it once or twice before, but uh, I, I guess at the core of it, what we're talking about is, of course, uh, you know, we have someone who's also uh, really head of head of government at a federal level in this country now. It's it's a story. It's a Corona based story that there were a series of of leaks, a very cozy relationship uh, with Ringier, one of the biggest publishing companies uh, in the country, one of the competitors to your group as well, uh, publishers of the of the the red top tabloid um, Blick, and and this is really you could say in many ways sort of shaken the foundations um, of the journalistic establishment uh, in this country as as much as everything that's happening in Bern as well. Yes, it's it's of course it's uh, it's the huge question: how much influence has the government on media? And uh, 
it was a huge topic also when the pandemic hit. I had every day thousands of news, not thousands, but hundreds of uh, letters uh, saying that we just report what the government says us, that we have a direct line to the to the government. And it was all always a lot of explanation going on, um, how our editors work, how they get their information. So this was was a huge topic and also a task for us to, to explain to the people how they can trust the media. <laughs> and now um, three years later, this leak appears um, that there was a strong connection between uh, Anna Berset and the CEO of the group. And uh, the editor, of course, uh, denies any uh, influence from the CEO to the to the to the newspapers. But of course, um, uh, people are a bit uh, uh, insecure about all of this. But uh, in our um, um, competition, uh, the Entertainment Sonntag, they had uh, they have asked uh, many people, and he's still Alain is still third. Um, most liked Bundesrat here, and even though uh, two thirds of the people don't 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 believe that uh, that they don't believe him, but he's still very li- very much liked. So this is really interesting. And then we have reports this morning. Also, I think the NZZ was reporting it last night, picking up a story at least from from another newspaper that also it seems that Mark Valder is is out um, and that there's been a bit of an eruption in the newsroom, rightly so, uh, that, of course, the journalists have uh, have called for him to depart. We haven't seen an official announcement about this yet, but I'm just curious on your newsroom floor as well. We talk about journalism being undermined by all of this, uh, what, what the sentiment and, and feeling is amongst yeah, people who are doing their daily job in the press in this country. Yeah, it's actually interesting because um, we had a big fear and we were thought, no, no, this is really, it's it's an example for this not working and we will be questioned. But actually, it's, it's not that bad. And also <laughs> the head of uh, the Publishers Association in Switzerland, he said, oh, I think it's not so bad. People will forget it and we will go on. So I don't know. At the moment, it's really a bit chaotic. I think we as journalists are really fearful that this is a huge image problem. But how it's really um, happening in the audience and what are the effects, we don't know yet. Uh, Florian, for you, a bigger crisis uh, for for journalism and and a media brand like this, as opposed to the federal government in Bern? For me, I think this is this is much bigger than it actually is. I think I don't see this. I mean, I see this maybe a bit differently, but I really don't see this as a big as a big media scandal. Um, and there is also really a political context to it. Um, the timing of all of this is, I think, um, not you know completely um, accidentally. Um, so there is um, you know one could say at least politically some sort um, of an organized effort. Um, to destabilize Alain Berset and the Federal Council as well. Um, and so I think this is kind of made bigger than it is. I think the one problem that I see is um, this kind of information sharing that is discretionary, right? That so one news outlet or another um, gets information first before another one gets it. But the fact that, you know, how I mean, these emails that came out um, 
between the communication advisor of the federal councillor and the CEO of Rigny. Um, you know, if you know a little bit how the Swiss administration and how politics and how this whole um, kind of system works in Switzerland, that is reasonably common. Mm. There are, this is an extremely small country. There are extremely close ties between, you know, the economy, the media, um, the administration. And in some senses, this is, you know, you could say, okay, this is a very... Uh, kind of an indication of corruption uh, but you can also flip the coin and say it makes actually a lot of things work very effectively because people know what concerns the other players um so i think to some extent this is something surfacing that is actually very much ingrained in our political system and it's not such a big scandal i i think um, andrew just uh, speaking of uh, of scandals that you're probably seeing it uh on the ticker just now, you were talking about Nadim Zahawi just a second ago, um, and we're just seeing news that uh, he's been uh, he's been sacked. Um, uh, just to, to bring you back in in on that, uh, the right thing to do for the government, uh, uh, you know, going into a Monday morning, and uh, yeah, what, what becomes a, a news week in the second month of the year. Yeah, pretty amazing. I, I don't know if Mr. Sunak was listening to our, to our show. Of course time. he was. <laughs> we, we, we know but, he's a regular on Children's Streets. So of course, of course, Mr. Sunak is listening to Monocle on Sunday. So, yes, just in the last two minutes, he it's been revealed that he's written to the, the chair of the Tory party, Nadim Zahawi, and said that there's been a serious breach of the ministerial code. I think it's 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 is good that he's done it. It's a shame that he didn't do it some days ago because I don't think much has changed. But anyway, there's been an investigation. He's been found to be in breach and he's gone. So I think for for, for Sunak, it does show that he has the ability to take some decisions pretty fast. But I think he could have benefited from taking them even faster. And it does look as though that the, you know, not only was there this, you know, not paying your tax correctly, which is not very good when you're in a in a in a in a government, but also that he he seemed to have obscured the the, the narrative a little bit and, and perhaps wasn't quite full uh, fulsome enough with the truth when he spoke to both the party and to the press as well. Mm. On on the notion of fulsome uh, uh, with the truth, Andrew, you uh, you commented or at least part of your column uh, yesterday was devoted to a dinner that we all attended um, at the Turkish ambassador's uh, residence uh, in London on uh, on Tuesday. Uh, there's someone who's maybe even you know, the, the, the outgoing ambassador, someone who is almost maybe uh, too fulsome with the truth. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. People have emailed me over the weekend asking about, you know, the role of a, an ambassador in the UK, especially somebody from a, a country like Turkey, where you have a, a powerful leader like Erdogan in the background. But I think he's an extraordinary character because, you know, when we've spoken to him, he's he's incredibly frank. And I don't think he tries to sugarcoat anything for us. You know, he has a, a very clear line, which is to defend his, his country's interests. But then he's in, he's very nuanced in, in how the world then interprets them. And he recognises that actually many people in the West are, are not going to be empathetic to many of the things coming out of Ankara but he he gives you a position on it and I think that's that's the most extraordinary thing and he's he's you know amusing as well so I talked to my column a little bit about you know the power of a good embassy the power of a good residence used well and it was entertaining it was a, an, an interesting evening he brought, brought his full team we got to meet you know, the, all the all the people who work across all, all of the the things that a, a, a government has to do through its embassy here in the UK but as you said, we had lots of kind of, you know, conversations which, you know, weren't particularly on point. And he was he was revealing about what he thought about all sorts of issues, especially, unfortunately, a little bit about how he felt that some parts of the UK were a little bit more creaky than they are back in Turkey. And also about uh, there was also an urbanism story for you as well um, about one of Turkey's neighbors. And who, who knew that um, horses could live on balconies and high rise buildings? 
Yes, he did. He had been he had been a representative in the town of Plovdiv in Bulgaria in the early days after communism, and he did point out that uh, that some people decided that actually the best use of their their, their newly built apartments was actually to hold keep their horses in them, even when it was several floors up off the ground. Yeah, I, I was going to say uh, Bulgaria didn't get out of that dinner <laughs> dinner so well, but I think we should uh, we, we should probably uh, leave it there. Um, just uh, Andrew, just well, I'll bring you because you've probably heard on the top of the program. We're going to talk about uh, something called aromat. Um, what's what's on your breakfast table this morning, or, or is the breakfast table set yet, Andrew? Well, I, I actually went for dinner last night with um, one of our former colleagues whose partner is uh, Korean. So I had so many Korean pancakes last night. I'm not sure that there's going to be anything on the, on the, on the breakfast table for a little while yet. Okay, so, you know, uh, 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 well, I'm not sure what they were based on, but, um, you know, it's called, it's, it's binde tuk. So it could be binde tuk in your case. Okay, that sounds good. I'm, I'm, happy, I'm up for that. Okay, so listen, uh, Lauren, you brought this up, aromat, which is this, this is not just a breakfast staple, but a lot of people like it on their eggs on a Sunday morning. It's also, it's, it's celebrating 70 years, uh, as you said. Just set it up for us. This, I mean, the packaging is, is of course, super iconic. It is probably one of the, the best recognized dispensers on, on any breakfast or, or listed on any uh, restaurant table uh, anywhere in this country and, and bordering regions as well. What role does Aromat play uh, in, in Swiss cuisine and as part of a, really a sort of a Swiss institution in many ways? I think in the Swiss cuisine, it has probably diminished its role. So I don't see it that often anymore. Um, I was actually yesterday we had a, um, a very, a very geeky reunion of um, something called MUN, so Model United Nations. So back in the day, we were simulating the UN and we met up again um, at a restaurant that is really like an old school, you know, Swiss um, restaurant. It's called Johanniter. Um, it's very close to Central. And not even there did I find an automat on the table. So that tells me that in, you know, even in very traditional Swiss um, cuisine, it's, it's kind of disappearing. But it is, as you said, I mean, it's totally iconic. I think it's one of the few um, kind of, you know, cornerstones, so to say, that everybody in Switzerland will know and will remember and will either hate or love. I think it's kind of like there's a huge divide there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's smart branding. It's, it's like bright yellow. It's like old school font. Um, and it comes with this, um, you know, with this, uh, this metal um, kind of thing to put it on a table. Um, that, that is also very iconic. So I think it, it is all, it's all always been the same um, and it's very kind of bright and it stands there and the taste is, I think, I mean, in my, in my opinion, quite appalling, but it's, it's recognizable. So whenever you eat automat, you know you eat automat. So um, the divide also helps to make it more, um, you know, more recognized, I think. But over to you, Priska, you have some numbers on this as well, yes. right? <laughs> yes, in Sonntag Zeitung, there is a dedicated article on, on this anniversary. 96% um, of Swiss population knows the brand automat. So brand recognition is really huge. And uh, it's interesting when it was uh, introduced to the market 70 years ago, they uh, they already had these these really ugly metal things to put it in on the restaurants, and they gave away 30,000 of these to canteens and restaurants. And after nine months, they say four of Swiss people knew Armand in 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 a year. So that's really um, interesting. 
Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a childhood staple. Also, my children love it actually. <laughs> but I think it's it's the glutamate uh, that makes. So this it is what made it con- well in a way controversial. Even the monosodium glutamate, of course, appears on many dishes all over the world, uh, and is of course defended in many corners. Was this part of the let's say the divide, as you say as well, that this was seen as an enhancer and? Yes, of course. But there's also of course a vegan and the and the natural version in the meantime. I think it's it's still and it's also you know the 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 legacy around it they they say uh, Swiss people um carried everywhere the little version um they take it on when they leave Switzerland and they go to the Antarctica they will take it with them everywhere so they cannot live without Aromat is is like a story about Swiss people that uh, yeah it's nice it's nostalgic it's the better times <laughs> just 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 on that uh as well, when you talk about these sort of these these iconic staples, you, anything in the story in terms of where their fortunes are in terms of their sales, stable, fallen dramatically? Is it? Uh, yeah, because as, as you said, you don't you used to see it on. Uh, yeah, and you'd even go to, of course, at the most sort of classic classic cafes, uh, the equivalent of a Swiss diner per se it would always be there. Um, and now it, it's it's yeah. I was asking for it actually. I like it. I was asking for it at a restaurant in the mountains for with my eggs the other day. They said, oh no, no, we don't have we don't have we don't have that anymore. It's like okay, it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, the article starts with a. Uh, with a mention that it was um, used in a cooking show and the author is very happy about this comeback of Aromat, so without the negative associations. It doesn't say anything about the, um, about the sales numbers. It, it's now owned, it's, it's produced by Knorr and Knorr is owned by Unilever, so I think, I don't know. Yeah, well, anyway, Andrew, um, I think they would like to look very good on, on the canteen uh, tables, uh, maybe down at, uh, at Midori House uh, in, in London, uh, when, when, those, when those get reshuffled and sorted. Um, we're just uh, sending off our uh, March issue um, in the next 48 hours. It goes off uh, off to press. Uh, and any sneak previews, anything that stands out on the pages uh, for, uh, for, of course, our subscribers and hopefully future subscribers uh, as well uh, that, that's, uh, that stands out for you, Andrew? Well, there's a few interesting things. One of uh, N- Natalie uh, Fashion Editors has commissioned a, an interesting story about three factories in Europe producing cloth and just the, the demand that there is for, the, for what they produce and how, in fact, it's the factory, as this reshoring process has happened over recent years, that's become almost the, the luxury player itself, not just the, the, the brands that they're helping. So it's a really an interesting story and, a, and, a, and it kind of hints that uh, actually you imagine that many of the, the companies who have their own lines will be snapping up even more of these factories we've already seen that happening but all of the factories are, are on page I have fascinating stories to tell and then the other interesting thing we've looked at is you know the, the bumps in the road for the, the the move to electric vehicles you know we, we know the direction of travel it, you know, it will almost inevitably happen just because of the legislation put in place but it turns out that when you spin the globe that there are kind of like hot spots for transition, California, the, the likes of small cities in Europe, but such as Amsterdam. But when you go beyond that, then, then in many places, there's almost nothing happening. And if you look at the numbers for the US, it's extraordinary, like a third of all the, of all the, the sales of electric vehicles are, are, are just in California. 
the, the density of all the charging points is all in California. So beyond there, as we know, Tyler, when we've been to the likes of Texas, people are a bit more skeptical of the idea at this point of getting an electric vehicle to take them long distances into the countryside between cities. So will it happen? And will it happen on the deadlines that people are putting up? It seems it may be a bit trickier than it is being sold to us. I mean, I caught an interesting interview, and this is someone who was in Dallas with us, Andrew. Uh, we have a, uh, just a, a small Q&A uh, with a gentleman, uh, Tanner Krauss, and he runs a, yeah, it is, it's a it's a gas station business. It's a convenience uh, business called Come and Go, and it's across, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's Iowa and, and, and surrounding states as well. And I guess it was just, it was just, there's that one sentence in the interview where he said, yeah, you can sort of talk about an electric future, but he said it's a story really for the coasts. And of course, he's talking about, yeah, I mean, they're, of course, they're ramping up the number of, of traditional gas stations that they have because, it's, as you said, it's simply not happening. But it's interesting, I guess, are we also uncovering, because I've got to go through the rest of the issue when I get upstairs, are we also sort of addressing the fact, as you said, there is this, yeah, this this narrative, and it's driven by the media, and of course, it's driven by by government, and, and of course, interest groups around it, which sort of seduces everyone into believing uh, that the, the e-future is going to be here you know, forever in the next 36 months in all corners of the world, but it's, um, it looks rather different. Well, if you're in a country where you, you, you endlessly have power shortages, for example, so we've looked a little bit of what's happening in South Africa where EVs are a minuscule part of the market. But the other interesting thing is, you know, that the, the, if you're wealthy and you live in a small city, then you can be a very kind of finger-waggering and kind of preachy about this. But if you're on a lower income, you, you know, a, a modest uh, EV costs 30,000 uh, euros. So how does a, a regular family quickly make that transition. Many people keep a hold of cars for eight, nine, ten years, or they're buying from the secondary market. And at this point, there's so few um, EVs on the secondary market that in a place like Amsterdam, in like five, six years' time, when everybody's like a year left to go, and to transition, because in 2030, it's illegal to, to have a, a, a traditional um, vehicle, a petrol vehicle in, in Amsterdam. I just don't see how people are going to be able to do it. And we're talking, they, they think that there may be another 200,000 vehicles in Amsterdam alone that need to go across to EVs. So I, I think it becomes a, a, a story of the haves and the have-nots, both globally, between city and countryside, and it gets a bit preachy. And, it, and, and if you're going to really bring people along on this journey, it needs to be much more nuanced and embracing. So just to put you on the spot, I, I believe your lease is coming to a close uh, quite soon uh, on, on your four wheels, uh, Andrew. What, what are you thinking in terms of next vehicle? Fully electric, hybrid, uh, or as long as the car just looks good? Well, it's, again, it's interesting. We went yesterday to um, Battersea Power Station here in London, which has been turned into you know, a huge shopping mall, essentially. But it's fascinating how all of the, the big car brands, you know, Polestar, for example, has a, a shop you know, alongside the Rolex shop. There is, there is a, a shop for the, these cars, and they're, they're selling them heavily in urban environments. Some of the cars looked actually pretty cool. There was like, you know, some, some very good brands on display in there. But again, again, if you're going beyond the city, I think it's tricky. I, I, you know, I had a hybrid before, and I'd, I'd happily go back to hybrid. But the, the tales of friends at Christmas who just were queuing for hours and hours and hours trying to find somewhere to recharge their cars, and the journeys that they thought were going to take three, four hours, taking eight hours, I think it's, uh, it's still, for me, a little bit kind of uh, edgy. And Andrew, just before we send you off on, on, your, on your Sunday, uh, you've set me up for this. 
your assessment of the Battersea Power Station. This was, you know, a of course a building recognised uh, not just London wide, UK wide. Anyone who was making uh, the the westerly approach across uh, Heathrow, you'd always look down at these amazing smokestacks. Uh, from a urbanism point of view, from a retail experience point of view, uh, your 25, 30 second uh, assessment. The building is extraordinary and, and the makeover of the building is amazing and it has the fortune of being on the river near Battersea Park so it has some other amenities that just boost it anyway. Internally they've done a, a pretty good job with the fit out but it's 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 not delivered on what they promised early on which I thought was going to be there was a huge presence for local brands. So it's, it's all the chain stores that you know. One or two nice things but nearly everything is, is recognisable from any other you know, shopping centre around London. So a little bit of disappointment there but I must say thousands of people there on a Saturday on a, on a, on a nice Saturday wandering around. So already plugged into London. Very good. Andrew Tucker, Editor-in-Chief, uh, wishing you a very lovely Sunday. Just gone at 10.31 and 30 seconds. Emma Nelson is back in London with the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. A police unit whose officers are accused of murdering a man after they pulled his car over has been disbanded. The Memphis Police Department says it's shut the so-called Scorpion Special Unit after its officers were filmed beating Tyree Nichols. In the last few minutes, the chairman of the Conservative Party, Nadim Zahawi, here in the UK, has been sacked by the Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak's ethics adviser has concluded there'd been a serious breach of the ministerial code. Mr Zahawi was under pressure to fully explain a multi-million pound settlement and penalty he paid to Britain's tax office, HMRC, while he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. A former army chief and NATO official has won the Czech Republic's presidential election on Saturday. Petr Pavel, who's 61 years old and a retired general, won 58.3% of the vote, defeating billionaire ex-premier Andrei Babish. And if you've ever wanted to sleep in two countries in the same night, then Hotel Arbez in the town of Les Russes on the border of France and Switzerland might be just the ticket. Guests can choose from a number of binational rooms where you can sleep with your head in Switzerland and your legs in France. It was created after the owner of a field which straddled the two nations built a shop so that he could do business in two countries simultaneously. Those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Switzerland. Emma, thanks very much. That Florian is so excited uh, about that as well because you like a little bit of France. So this, yeah, like, exactly. you love your homeland here as well. So it just fulfills all your fantasies, maybe your just, bedroom fantasies. Yeah, and I was just wondering about the balcony. Is the balcony also in two countries, or how does that work? And what is on the balcony after these horror stories? You know, Emma, over to you. Not sure about the balconies, but I do know about the restaurant. Is that half of it is um, a rather elegant French affair, and the other side, it's slightly more relaxed and Swiss so you can actually cross borders and there are bedrooms where you I think the honeymoon suite means that you can actually sleep with your loved one at the border which sounds marvellously good fun um, it, it's got <laughs> <laughs> and for the restaurant it's very simple because the Swiss part will just be full of aromat it'll have aromat it's really easy to recognise so I wanted to bring you in on the aromat discussion mm. someone who spent considerable time here someone who I've seen likes a breakfast or I mean like, I mean, Tyler, like, what do you mean? <laughs> why else would you go? Why else would the family holiday in Austria so I much? I do love we a have, breakfast. You, you, you like a breakfast. I love a your, breakfast. Your views on aromat. We have aromat in the house, and I try not to use it because it gets a bit too. We get to, like you. You get quite used to the, the flavor of it, and it's rather wonderful. Um, but we all know that it's the, the, that many people don't like the monosodium glutamate in it. Can I? Could I ask a seasoning-related question? I really want someone to is clarify this. Is this for Florian or for Prisco? This is for the whole group. Okay. Um, I'm 
very well acquainted with Maggie seasoning, which looks like that sort of dark brown toxic little droplets that you put in your soup and what like have you. Like Swiss soy sauce. Swiss soy sauce, <laughs> exactly. What's the difference between Maggie and Aromat? Are they main? Are they like sworn enemies, or are they the same no. stable? Or no. what? It's, so please clarify this Pris- for me because I'm a massive fan of Maggie. <laughs> no, they are even in the, the the thing made of metal I mentioned, which is on every, which was on every restaurant table. Maggie is also part of this. There's salt, pepper, maggi and aromat. But it's a bit weird because it's very, very similar. Mm. So it's, I think it's probably mostly glutamate and the rest is a bit of different seasoning. So it's very close. I think maggi you can really use um, for salad sauces and, uh, and soups and stuff. And I think it's very close. Okay, thank you very much. Just to do for that. Florian, anything to add on? on the no, mic? I'm just my my thoughts are, are venturing off into this taste, and I, I just don't understand why people love it because it's just like it's such a weird. It's so many things in there. It's like such a weird mix of a seasoning, and then yet it's like such a uniform taste, and you recognize it everywhere. Like if you have these mucky drops in a salad sauce, it just like mm. reminded me of my childhood. I was like, oh my, this is just every salad sauce tastes the same. You can take the best like Italian olive oil, and then you put two drops of that, and it's all the same. <laughs> This, this takes us back to the to the well the, the Swiss side of, of the restaurant, which you said. What did you say? You said it looked a little bit no, casual or relaxed. Light affair, light light affair. <laughs> apparently, is what the report says. Um, whereas in France, I think you have a little bit more of a, a sort of a more structured experience. But I don't know. I don't know. I would be happy to bring back one of those little metal pots on my table um, to okay, try and I'll get. get to, I'll to get, get down the, to the, I'll get down to the Brocken House. Could you send I, me some? Briscoe and Florian. <laughs> Don't steal we'll, any. We'll, we'll get you one. We'll keep, we'll keep, we'll keep their eyes peeled. Uh, just before we go, um, any culinary discoveries uh, in, in Estonia or on your way back uh, via Helsinki? Um, an awful lot of herring. I mean, I, I had four meals involving herring last Saturday on my transit back because I started off in Tallinn and I ended up via Warsaw on the aeroplane. And uh, breakfast was herring. Uh, the lunch on the plane, the lunch in the lounge was herring. Uh, on the plane, herring. And then on the way back again, we had a bit more herring. So it was, it, there was an awful, it was very, very fish based. Mm. And mm. I, I, was, I was also, I was wondering who, who was doing the booking because I think, listen, I mean, uh, <laughs> go <laughs> What? You know where I'm going with this. I think well, <laughs> fin air inbound sounds great. Lot on the way back to London. Mm-hmm. Fine. Oh, really fine. F- friendly, oh. friendly, fine. Friendly, okay. St- very to the point. Extremely yes. to the point. Warsaw Airport, we can have a conversation about that another day. Um, but but once you got on the plane, they were they were friendly enough, which was fine. But I like my little fin air between Helsinki and uh, and Estonia. That was probably one of the most fun flights I've ever done. Any navy leather gloves, because that's one of the great things about fin air is, is, is just you know, all of most is, it is the women wearing them. Uh, yeah, you know, short sleeves and then just a navy leather glove. There's something also very sort of strict and to the point about that. Absolutely. And everybody had an incredibly neat bun. And who doesn't love a silk necktie on, on, on crew? It it's, has to be the classiest, classiest way of traveling. And, you know, it has to be beautiful. And a, and a leather glove. I didn't see the leather gloves, but I did see the wonderful neckties on. I think did not have neckties as well. This this is a whole piece we could talk I'll about. I'll let you know. I'll, I'll, I will be checking it. I'm, I'm thin airing this uh, this this week. Uh, as well. Anyway, listeners, style tips like a tight bun <laughs> and, uh, and, and a neckerchief. Absolutely. <laughs>
Emma, we might catch up with you at the end of the program. It's uh, just uh, 10.38 here uh, in Zurich. It's 9.38 uh, back in London, uh, where we're going to remain. Uh, Michael Binion uh, is joining us uh, right now. He's the leader writer um, at The Times. And uh, yes, uh, lots of uh, good stories uh, to get into. If I look at my notes, uh, normally a guest comes on and they want to talk about two or three things. He's given us a full six, maybe even more. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Yes, sorry about the six. No, <laughs> no, busy not news at all. Day. <laughs> of course. Well, as we were saying, uh, just just going into this, of course, uh, the the breaking uh, news since we've been uh, on air. Uh, it's not one of your your main stories, of course. You do touch on other aspects of government, but of course, uh, Mr. Zawi uh, being uh, being booted out of uh, government, as we were saying, it may, maybe could have happened a little bit earlier in terms of. Uh, Yep, stability, and of course, another story which you've been covering, and and everyone's sort of been looking at these first hundred days of of Mr. Uh, Sunak's prime ministership. Uh, but uh, I guess that was probably the the right thing to do at the right time. Indeed, yes. Well, I think the actual announcement on uh, Zahawi was uh, after the edition had gone, so there's nothing in the paper that I've got on that. But there is an awful lot about how um, Sunak is doing, and the answer is he needs to big up a bit and he needs to show himself and be a bit tougher. So maybe, maybe, um, you know, the comments will be a bit more favorable this coming week. Mm. I want to actually just to go, and maybe it's a little bit sort of down page, and it's and it's in the world uh, section of the paper, and and this is um, you know just a fantastic piece of reporting. It's one of sort one of your top correspondents, Christina Lamb, and and she's you know spending time um, in Harare and beyond, and it's just it's a fantastic piece of foreign reportage, um, and and maybe you can set it up for us a little bit more, but it really sort of just talks about. Zimbabwe after Mugabe, and of course everyone thought there might be a bit of an uptick in the country, but it's a, it's a rather different uh, picture she paints. Yes, it sounds dreadful. I mean, the report itself had to be written in secret. I think she probably had to leave the country before she wrote it, otherwise she'd be in big trouble. She was talking to people, uh, an MP who had been beaten up because she was supporting an opposition uh, candidate in the coming elections, and it, a really vicious kind of uh, beating thugs they sarcastically called the MP, your honorable, as they beat her. Uh, and um, the living standards have plummeted. They say 75% of people are jobless. Currencies collapsed, you know, just as in the old days, 200% uh, inflation or more. Um, most people simply can't get by, no electricity, so they have to cook on open fires. And meanwhile, the elite uh, and Munangagwe, the, the president, is living pretty well. And it seems just a continuation of how it was under Mugabe. No, it, indeed, and also this is just a, another. Just it's a it's a great piece of of reporting. Uh, it is, you know, in many ways, uh, of course, is what a lot of the UK papers were once uh, known for. Uh, as a leader writer, are you, are you excited when when this type of uh, piece comes across uh, your desk? Because even I mean, you could I mean, the Times and, and the Sunday Times they, they do a very good job with this, but maybe it, it's not the amount of foreign reportage that that we used to get. And of course, you you get a piece by by Miss Lamb, uh, of course, you know, coming across our coffee tables. It's uh, it's 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 quite uh, quite outstanding. It is. It's very good. I mean, the Sunday Times is lucky in that because it's only once a week, they can give a bit more space to a big story like this. So there's a whole page there. And uh, they are able to give a really colourful and pretty grim account of what's going on in places like this. Daily papers have less space for these big stories. But nevertheless, for example, the kind of coverage we've been getting from Ukraine has been pretty dramatic and colourful and dreadful as well, uh, describing exactly what's going on in the cities there. And of course, for those who are writing comments about uh, the news, it's very important to know exactly what it feels like and what it's like in these places. 
Now, both the Times, uh, Michael, and, and particularly the Sunday Times, they, they like a list. Uh, and this is this is one which has started to, to gather attention over the last years. It's not the, the rich list that everyone knows. It's, it's, it's more curious and more interesting. It's the top taxpayers uh, list. So uh, what, what does it to reveal and show us about the top uh, taxpayers in the UK? Well, it's quite interesting. It shows that those that pay top tax have no intention of hiding their money away. They are public-minded citizens. They believe that tax should be paid. And they pay what they owe, which in some cases is an enormous amount. Uh, and funny enough, the one that's paid the most is uh, rather against the usual stereotype. He's a Russian, or at least born in Russia, now got a British citizenship, called Alex Gurko. Uh, he paid £487.4 million last year. And I think cumulatively, over um, the last four years, he's paid an enormous amount, even more, uh, amounting to several billion. Uh, and then... Um, various others who have made their money in um, retail or other uh, sort of general general commerce, they've paid a great deal. Uh, racing families have paid a lot. I mean, we're talking about 1.13 billion for Stephen Rubin and family, 1.95 billion for the Coates family. Uh, this is over four years. Well, that's a lot of money, uh, and it's very worthwhile. It's a good news story, you know, people who pay that tax because they believe the country needs the money. No, indeed. And I was going to say, it's, uh, of course, we, all, we, we like to sort of look at just you know, shiny rich lists in general. We want to see uh, what pop stars and what designers have, uh, of course, uh, crept up the ranks. But this is uh, sort of, I was just wondering, sort of the evolution thinking, uh, you know, behind this editorially when uh, when your friends at the Sunday Times cooked this up. Was, was this more to just shine a light on upstanding citizens? Of course, it's a, very, it's, it's a different metric. It also suggests wealth uh, in, in a slightly different way. But it was also to say that, uh, yeah, these are also people that uh, keep the runways paved uh, and uh, and the rolling stock uh, going along train lines? Well, I think so, yes. I mean, the, the Russian made his money working out good ways of teaching kids maths. Uh, and they reckon that the money he paid would have kept, uh, you know, hundreds of schools and teachers employed for a whole year uh, in what, he, what he's done. Um, and of course, you usually think of Russian oligarchs as simply people who hide their money and try to avoid paying a single penny. But I think the aim of the um, article was to say, yes, there are public-minded citizens and some quite well-known ones. James Dyson, you know, the billionaire vacuum cleaners uh, entrepreneur, he paid uh, £93 million. J.K. Rowling, uh, pretty well-known for everything, not least for all the row about her views on uh, trans issues. She paid £15 million. I mean, that suggests that Harry Potter is still bringing in quite a good sum of money. But these people, as Sting paid twenty-five million pounds in uh, tax, uh, and it's sort of uplifting to know, okay, they they may be very wealthy, they may earn a lot, but they they pay their share. Yeah, and also suggests as well that uh, the, those royalties in those good old days, uh, when those contracts were inked, uh, it, it continues to roll in. Indeed, yes. Well, uh, I mean, if you've written a few bestseller books, they don't the royalties don't stop. You know, after the first year, they go on and on. Uh, just we, we tend not to get into it to red top territory uh, too much, but uh, you, you do have a Prince Andrew story for us. We do. Yes, it's a rather peculiar one, because, in fact, the Sunday Times is picking up a story that was in another newspaper. And of course, in the old days, you would never even admit that other newspapers ever had stories at all. <laughs> they are reprinting a photograph that was in the Daily Telegraph, and it shows um, a mock up. Uh, in other words, it's not the actual people of two people in a bath 
uh, one wearing the face, they put on the face of Prince Andrew and another of his accuser, Virginia uh, Guilfrey, if that's how you can pronounce her name. Um, and the aim is to show that uh, the bath is so small, it would be impossible to have any kind of hanky-panky going on in the bath, which is what she was claiming, apparently. And it's an attempt to show that actually uh, what she said was untrue and what Andrew claimed was true. Um, I've no idea whether this photo proves anything, but apparently um, it's uh, being touted about as a way that Andrew might be able to challenge the uh, ruling, or at least the settlement in which um, she appeared to have uh, won a great deal of money. Yes, and we and we believe that this is, of course, uh, uh, bubbling up, uh, and whether, of course, this is going to be challenged. Um, of course, we're not sure when it comes to uh, yeah, deep pockets uh, or otherwise uh, uh, what what uh, the prince has in his coffers uh, still. But um, we will uh, we will leave it there and, and let you get on uh, with your Sunday. Uh, Michael Vinion, a leader uh, writer at The Times uh, with us this morning uh, from London, uh, just at 1047. Here in Zurich, I'm also with uh, Priska Amstutz from the Tagus Anzeiger, also uh, Florian as well. Florian, just a little bit earlier, uh, we were, uh, of course, talking about Christina Lamb's story uh, that's, uh, that's in uh, the Sunday Times this morning. Morning, uh, from Zimbabwe. You picked up on an, also an interesting story, uh, also out of Africa as well, a, a DRC piece, uh, which I believe was in uh, the Financial Times uh, yesterday or Friday. Yes, exactly. It's in the Financial Times. It's actually um, um, a bit of, it's it's not yesterday or, or the day before, it's a bit of, um, you know, maybe a week ago or something, but it's about a story that I think doesn't des- or doesn't get the attention it deserves. Um, so in the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, um, we have the second largest rainforest in the world. Um, and the DRC has announced um, roughly a year ago, a bit less, um, that they will auction off the rights, extraction rights for 30 oil um, plots. And 15 of those are really within high um, biodiversity areas, very deep in the rainforest. And this auction is closing end of the month, so early next week. Um, so now the bits are coming in. We don't know which ones are coming in. Um, but what they have publicly announced is that, um, and it's, if it works out, it would be the first time um, ever that they will accept bits, non-extraction bits. So bits from entities that will promise not to extract the oil and instead sell basically carbon credits from, you know, not basically accessing the rainforest and therefore, you know, saving a lot of, um, saving a lot of emissions. So I think um, it's interesting because this hasn't been possible for a very long time and it is starting to become possible because you see a lot of very large companies promising or committing to net zero um, companies like the shells and the like and of course their core business is emission intensive so if they want to reduce emissions they have to somehow buy certificates that emissions are reduced elsewhere um, and so this whole movement now um, all of a sudden generates the revenues that may actually make it possible that um, you know there is at least in these in these super crucial areas, there is a halt um, to oil extraction. So um, they publicly announced that they will allow bits like this, so based on carbon credits and based on crypto solutions. So I'm quite um, you know excited to see what is coming in and whether um, this will succeed. Particularly, of course, and that links to the story um, that we've talked about before um, on Harare and Zimbabwe, because you know the institutional context of DRC is very much comparable to the one in Zimbabwe, right? It's it's absolutely unpredictable, particularly if you go to more rural areas, um, huge instability, even conflict um, towards Rwanda has been firing up again with alleged kind of shooting downs of planes. So, I mean, it, it is really one of the worst and most difficult institutional contexts to realize a project. Um, but yet, you know, we can't choose where these rainforests are. And it is in the DRC, so we have to, as a global community, worry about this because it is absolutely essential, you know, to keep the climate 
within stable limits that this this rainforest maintains. Uh, before we head off to uh, to Ljubljana to speak to our guide Alonne, I just uh, just want us to pick up on a story that's also been uh, making news over the past few days uh, here in Switzerland, and it, and it's a good one, Priska. It's uh, of course it concerns uh, the Kunsthaus, the the uh, of course the the art uh, gallery museum uh, here in Zurich, and two rather high-profile paintings that have seemingly disappeared. Yes, as it happens. It's been it's been a rough start for a new Kunsthaus director uh, on Demester. Um, she started last um, fall. Uh, in August, there was a fire in the Kunsthaus and many paintings were um, not destroyed, but um, damaged, damaged you know. or dirty. <clears throat> I think many were just dirty and waited in line to be cleaned. And now the Kunsthaus has uh, figured out that Two of them are missing, old masters, um, and uh, which is very painful for a museum. And now um, they are on loan. So they do, uh, doesn't own these paintings. They are on loan uh, from someone um, who, uh, this is a, a, a little side aspect, funny side aspect of this story. Uh, it's uh, from a collector who ran an intelligence service in the in the 80s uh, which was uh, closed down 1990 and uh, yeah, it's image wise um switzerland as a place of safe keeping and safes um to paintings being lost mm. um not be able to track them down it's a bit embarrassing but with the intelligence though link connection as well you know maybe they could sell the rights to it, uh, you know, at least to finance if they can't find it, because it sort of it has it does have all the makings of a, a, a maybe a heavily streamed serial as well, <laughs> potentially. Uh, we're going to uh, head uh, to the Balkans uh, right now. At the top of the show, of course, you heard uh, uh, the fine uh, vowels from uh, our our guy Delaney, uh, who is joining us. Uh, I believe you're in Ljubljana this morning. It doesn't say on my notes, but I think you, sh- you should be in Ljubljana on a Sunday morning. Good morning, guy. I certainly am in Ljubljana. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, now, listen, you, uh, we, we should probably just get it out of the way because uh, you, you were talking. We just, of course, we were just touching on uh, an intelligence-based story here. Um, and, and you have a, a little bit of a spy story between Serbia and Slovenia for us. I do indeed. They're calling it the Slovenian Watergate in some of the more excitable media outlets here. And this is allegations that the former prime minister of Slovenia and the current president of Serbia did a little bit of quid pro quo action on digging up dirt on their political opponents. So the allegations are that in Slovenia, the uh, intelligence services, the money laundering services were tasked with digging up information on Dragan Šolak, who was a bit of a media mogul across the region, owns uh, an outfit called United Group. He's also a, a part owner of Southampton Football Club, funnily enough, and he's been described as the enemy uh, by, by Serbia's president, Aleksandr Vucic. Now, in return for this digging up of, of, of any dirt that could be found on Dragan Šolak, the allegation is that Serbia was digging up information about Robert Golob, who is now the current prime minister of Slovenia. So obviously that dirt digging didn't quite work as Janis uh, Janša was hoping. And, and just tell us what uh, I mean. Are, are there any tasty morsels uh, out of out of all of this? Not particularly. I mean, this is it didn't land, and that's that's the thing. They were coming up with this information a couple of days, for example, before Slovenia's elections about Robert Golob, his and his uh, the way that he ran uh, an electricity company called Gen E. And uh, it just didn't land at all. But the way in which it landed was extremely suspicious. And the investigative portals are saying it shows this was a coordinated action between the governments of Serbia and Slovenia uh, to try and do do the dirty, really.
You're in a bit of a spy mood this morning, um, it seems, because you've also got uh, even an, ex- an espionage uh, ex- expose <laughs> story out of Albania as well. Yeah, this involves Prime Minister Adi Rama, who the opposition at Albania are claiming was um, uh, conspiring with a former FBI agent to um, blacken their names and, and ensure that Adi Rama stays in power longer than the 10 years he's currently already spent in office. Uh, but this is actually a much wider case. The FBI agent in question, a former FBI agent, Charles McGonagall, was the former head of counterintelligence at the FBI, and he's charged in the US with all sorts of influence peddling and accepting of bribes, and one of the bribes he's accused of requesting and accepting is from an Albanian intelligence agent. And if you look at the charges in the US, it seems that he was going around with this Albanian intelligence agent trying to strike oil exploration deals and did indeed meet uh, Albania's Prime Minister Edi Rama in among all this. So all of this is going to come out in this legal action in the United States, it would seem. Edi Rama, incidentally, doesn't deny having met uh, this this FBI agent, Charles McGonagall, and in fact has described him as a friend. Now, uh, well, we'll stay almost in the, in the immediate uh, neighbourhood. Um, and, and this is, of course, a story which was bubbling up. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been throughout the autumn. Um, it seemed to get a little bit spicier in, in the run-up to, to Christmas. And, of course, this is uh, between Kosovo and, and, and Serbia and, and everything mm. we've been seeing on the border. And, of course, Brussels not being very happy about this and, and trying to call uh, well, both sides into line. And we've got an ultimatum basically now from the European Union to both Kosovo and Serbia saying you accept the normalisation deal which we've drawn up or we'll stop being nice to you. We'll stop giving you money, we'll stop any chance of um, EU accession talks, all of that will go out of the window. You've got to accept this deal which is on the table. And the interesting thing about the deal that's on the table is it, it wouldn't make either side completely happy, which is, I suppose, you know, the uh, elements of a good deal in this case. It, the, the details aren't exactly public, but what we know and suspect is that it basically involves Serbia not recognising uh, Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence, but on the other hand, it would no longer stand in the way of Kosovo's membership of international organisations. On Kosovo's side, what they'd have to do is finally set up this semi-autonomous association of ethnic Serb municipalities in Kosovo, which they agreed to do 10 years ago and have never implemented. And that seems to be the big sticking point vis-a-vis Serbia going any further in negotiations with them. So Kosovo wouldn't get what they want, which is recognition from Serbia. Serbia would you know, more or less have to wave goodbye to Kosovo in all but name. Uh, and uh, if I'm sitting in, in Brussels or I'm uh, an EU monitor uh, in, uh, in, in the region, in both capitals, uh, what, what does that mean and when we think about outcomes and, and possibilities from all of this? Well, I think in terms of outcomes and possibilities, what the EU's been thinking about, certainly over the past year, minds have been concentrated on, frankly, how rubbish they've been in the Western Balkans. They have, you know, given loads and loads of money to this region, and yet people in the region don't realise it. So, for example, uh, in a survey that came out just the other day from the European Integration Ministry in Serbia, it emerged that fewer than three in ten Serbians realised that the European Union is the biggest donor to Serbia. People were saying things like China, Russia, you know, you can imagine. Uh, But they don't realise what the European Union actually does do in Serbia. And you can, you know, expand that across the Western Balkans, really. And they know that with it's very easy for Russia to stir up trouble in the region. It's very cheap. They don't actually have to do anything practical. They just have to make little noises or have little tiny operations which can 
can then cause a kerfuffle. So they really need to get things sorted out in terms of integrating the region with the European Union by hook or by crook. And this is part of that effort. Guy Delaney, uh, our man uh, in the Balkans uh, for us uh, in, uh, in Ljubljana this morning, uh, where he is most Sunday mornings. Uh, thanks very much for that. Uh, just coming to the end of the program, very, very quickly, Florian, what happens on a Sunday with, for Florian Egli in Zurich? Where are you off to? Um, I hope I'm going to be off to a sauna. Okay. That's the plan. Enge, all, all this. Enge, yes, can, including a dip in the lake. Can, can, can pile in. Priska joining him? No. No. <laughs> I would like to, but uh, I'll have some champagne and cake. I will celebrate my yesterday's birthday with my family. Your birthday? Yes. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> That's all the time we have uh, for today on this edition of Monocle on Sunday. Thanks to Priska Amstutz, uh, Florian Egli, Andrew Tuck, also Emma Nelson back in London. Also, our thanks to Michael Binion at The Times uh, and Guy Delaney as well. Our producers today, Desiree Bandley and Emma Nelson and Nora Holt back in London. I'm Tyler Berlay. Uh, Often Asia will be joining you from Tokyo uh, this time next week. Enjoy. Goodbye. هنا مونوكل 24 مونوكل 24 ديس You're listening to Monocle 24 Broadcasting from London, Zurich, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Toronto and Los Angeles You're listening to Monocle 24 With our daily digital bulletins, films, books, newspapers, magazines, and radio service, we're your complete media partner around the world, around the clock. Stay with us. More great programming up next. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. It's 1900 in Tokyo, 11am in Berlin, 10am here at Midori House in London and 4am in Chicago. You're listening to Monocle 24. Hello from Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and welcome to Monocle Weekend. At 11am, Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound is joined by the theatre critics Natasha Tripley and Matt Wolf to talk about what 2023 will look like on the stage. So lots to look forward to. First though, a look at the news. Music. 